The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. All right. What a joy to be here. Thank you so much for uh, having me. It's, it's a delight to uh, be in this pulpit. There's so many good things happening at Capital Community Church, and it's a thrill to see the Lord doing such a good work here. So praise God for how God works and how Christ builds his church, and so many of you are a part of that. It's, uh, it's sweet to hear children singing uh, with, with real gusto. That's a wonderful thing, and to hear a congregation singing uh, with, with joy in the Lord, what a blessing. So my name is Owen Strand, and I'm so glad to be here in this pulpit. I do indeed have a long-standing friendship with your pastor. Uh, love this man, excellent man. Um, by God's grace, a man that I believe uh, we will be able to, to see really be a, a key voice in such evil days uh, for our generation. So um, I am so thankful for Grant and this great family and the kids. We hit the Y yesterday. You may have seen us blasting around the YMCA and having all sorts of fun. So uh, it's been fun to come in from Conway, Arkansas and see the Castleberries. Some years ago, I heard a story that has stuck with me ever since. It was a story of the musician Michael Card, whose father was a surgeon, I believe a heart surgeon, and uh, a man who saved lives and had an incredibly important profession, but also a man who was very busy and who would come home pretty burdened and uh, pretty wiped out after hours of surgery, something that many of us fathers can understand in returning home after seeking to provide for our families. And Michael Card, as a boy, was desperate to connect with his dad, as children are, of course, every child is, boy or girl alike. And um, his dad would come in uh, to the home, and he would go into his study, and he would shut the door. And he was, he was often in the study alone, with the door even locked. So Michael Card recounts in some of his work the experience of being locked away from his dad, having his dad gone, you know, all day. And then when his dad would come home, the, the burden, the weight of his job was upon him, and he wasn't really able, sadly, to engage with his family. So Michael Card would draw pictures and slide them under the door in an attempt to connect with his dad. I don't say this this morning to shame fathers. Uh, goodness knows there's enough of that in American society, men being called toxic, boys being treated as if they are toxic for being boyish. These kind of problems are rampant all around us. So that's not my message to come and talk about how bad men are. But I, I raise this story, I share this story, because I think it relates not simply to fatherhood, to fathers and their sons, perhaps the most fraught relationship there is on earth, but because I think it relates more broadly to God. I think many of us 
wrongly see God as if he is that father in the study, locked away from us, inaccessible, not really wanting us to approach him, and frankly, not really wanting to connect with us very much. In fact, I think that because of our sin, our indwelling sin, as Grant prayed a few minutes ago, we might think to ourselves, not simply that God is a distant father. We might think to ourselves, I shouldn't approach God the Father. I don't have good grounds for going to God. I don't deserve the right to fellowship with God. I've got to get myself cleaned up. You ever think this? Has anyone ever thought a thought like this? You don't have to raise your hand. We're not going to do Baptist youth camp here, okay? But, but think to yourself in your head. I grew up in Baptist youth camp, so that's not, a, that's not a dig. In coastal Maine, it was a small Baptist youth camp, but it shaped me. I loved Camp Good News. Think, think this thought to yourself. You might have thought this thought yesterday. You might have thought this thought this week. I don't deserve to go to God. I don't have any grounds for praying to God. I am here to announce to you this morning joyfully that the Word of God is here to break up that view with gusto. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 4 in the New Testament, almost to the end of the Bible. Hebrews chapter 4, we have an appointment with the great iceberg called Hebrews 4.16, and we are going to see our wrong theology of God the Father gets smashed and reframed. Hebrews 4, we're going to start reading in verse 14 and read down to verse 16. Verse 16 is going to be our focus this morning. Hebrews 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Father, help us this morning to find exactly these things. We need so much mercy and grace. Reframe how we see you, Father, through the work of your Son by the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. This morning we're going to see four truths that reframe our prayer life. I'm not here to give you a stuffy lecture on prayer. I am here to reframe any way that you and I may have slipped into wrong thinking about the character of God and wrong thinking about prayer. I'm here with a target on our shared wrong thinking. So four truths to reframe our prayer life this morning. First truth, first truth this morning, our intercession, our prayer is based on the work of Christ. It's based on the work of Christ. You see that in verses 14 and 15. The author writes, we don't know who the author of Hebrews is, but that author writes in verse 16, let us then draw near. Let us then. So that points us back 
to the preceding verses, verses 14 and 15. The work of Christ, the great high priest, is the basis of our prayer life. You have a prayer life with God, not on the basis of your life, not on the basis of your week, your month, your year, your years in the Christian faith. You have a prayer life with God because of Jesus Christ the righteous. That is how you can know you can pray to God at any time as a believer and God will hear you. There are no times that the Christian reaches out to God in prayer and is turned away. There, there is behavior in our life that can start to hinder our prayers, these sorts of things. We know that is true, and so that may factor into some of that wrong thinking. But the way out of a pattern of sin, the way out of behavior that is leading you away from God, is to crack up the ice by praying a prayer of confession and repentance to God. That's the way back. That's how you go back. And you can know that your prayers will be effectual, not because you are batting at such a high level in your Christian walk. You really are keeping close accounts with God, and that's the basis of your engagement with God. No, the basis of your engagement with God is that verse 15 there. We have a high priest, and this high priest can sympathize with our weaknesses. This high priest is not lofty and closed off from us. This high priest has not locked the door and never will. This high priest has flung the doors open wide to God's throne. This high priest, Jesus Christ the righteous, has taken on flesh, become weak like you and I are weak, and been tempted beyond anything you and I can ever believe because you see the one who doesn't give in to temptation is the one who is the most tempted. Now this verse, verse 15, doesn't mean that Jesus had every form of sinful desire there is to have. You hear that out there in evangelicalism in some circles today. That's not what Hebrews 4.15 means. It doesn't mean that Jesus had ungodly sexual desire, ungodly homosexual desire, ungodly pedophilic desire, these sorts of things. It doesn't mean that at all. Because those desires you see flow from a sinful heart. Those are what we call internal sinful desires. Jesus did not have those. But Jesus had every external temptation you could have, yet without sin. That's important because it means that Jesus has conquered sin. Jesus has not sinned where you and I have sinned, where you and I do sin. And it's on that basis that Jesus goes to the cross and dies for us. And now we have perfect atonement for sin. And that means we have perfect access to God. You understand this? Do you understand just how invited you are into God's presence, Christian? A total atonement made by Christ, yields total access to the Father. 
total access with no shame, with no hint of guilt. Now, you and I do have sin to confess, absolutely. That, that's a subject to discuss and preach about from other texts, to be sure. We all do. We all do on a daily basis. That's a vital practice in the Christian life. But that's not what this text is narrowed in on. This text is narrowed in on you and me understanding that we have total access to the Father. The door is not locked. In fact, it is not merely that the door is not locked. It's that the Father, God the Father, wants you to come in. He wants you in the room. He wants you to climb up on his lap. He wants you to talk to him. He wants you to tell him about your day. He wants to connect with you. And he doesn't want that for a couple minutes and then it's the stiff arm because dad has important things to do and you need to clear out, kid. No, he wants you to stay there. He welcomes you home. In fact, if we can bring in the parable of the prodigal son, this is the father who doesn't merely allow you to run toward him. This is the father who runs toward you in order to love you, in order to embrace you. So, Christian. All this theology of God means that there is never a time when you lack the ability to approach the throne of God. And if you have wandered into a pattern of sin, the way back to God is to pray to God. Nothing fancy. Don't clean yourself up. Don't try to do it. Don't try to have a consistent week in your own strength. So then you can feel good about going to God. No, cancel that. If you are struggling, if you are drifting, if you have had a tough week in your marriage, if you've had a tough week as a mother or father, grandfather, grandmother, aunt, uncle, if, you, if you're struggling in your vocation, in your job, in your day-to-day -day work, whatever it may be, the way back to God is to start praying to approach the Father. Second truth about prayer from this text. We pray not in terror, but confidence. We do not pray as Christians in terror, but in confidence. You see that in verse 16, the beginning part. Let us then with confidence draw near. Does that describe your prayer life? Do you draw near with confidence to God? Is is confidence, paresias in the Greek, boldness, boldly drawing near? Does that describe your spiritual walk? If it doesn't, I'm not here to pour a bucket of hot water on your head. That sounds very uncomfortable. I'm here to say, this is the way we are to pray. Not in terror but in confidence. Now we have to uh, do some fancy footwork here in biblical terms, in exegetical terms. Some of you may be thinking, even those of you who are students of scripture, I know this is a student of scripture kind of church. There are Bible studies in the bulletin, just boom, boom, Bible study, Bible study. I love it. Okay, so what happens when you study the Bible is that you'll have counter ideas, not, not that they, they are opposite one another, but they balance one another, that is. And so you might be thinking about a concept called the fear of God. The fear of God. Some of you might have thought that as I'm talking. Like, wait, wait, okay. Hmm. 
this is an interesting presentation this fine Sunday morning, but aren't, aren't I supposed to fear God? Well, let's look at a couple texts. Let's just get it out there, baby. Let's be honest. Proverbs 1.7 in the Old Testament. You don't have to turn there. You can. I can read it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. You ever read a Bible verse and you're like, that is such a rebuke and sermon to me and everyone else right there? Is that not against the spirit of the age today? Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Be on notice. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. We are in a foolish culture, are we not? Oh, it's painful, isn't it? It's painful to see and feel, but there's better news. There's a beginning of knowledge, not the end point of knowledge. There's a beginning of knowledge. There's a place to go to find knowledge, to find wisdom, to find instruction. What is that place? The fear of the Lord. But what is the fear of the Lord? Is it cowering in terror, even in the Old Testament, at the prospect that God may nuke you at any moment? There are places where people fear God. The unbeliever does fear God rightly, then and now, because their sins are not atoned for, their sins have not been covered through justification by faith. Derek Kidner says this, though, about the identity of the fear of God, the, the definition of it in Proverbs 1.7. It is a worshiping submission to the God of the covenant, who has revealed himself by name. That name was prayed for earlier as well. Yahweh, the covenant name of God. The follower of God, even in the Old Testament, knows the covenant name of God, the personal name of God. And so the fear of God is not cowering in terror that God will strike you down as a follower of God. The fear of God is being worshipfully submissive. You could simplify that. Following God humbly. That's the fear of God. That's not something you arrive at after you do an extensive philosophical inquiry into whether God exists and whether there are, in fact, proofs that can show you beyond a shadow of a doubt in logical terms that God exists. And then when the philosophical proofs are presented to you, then you arrive at the conclusion made by your own processes of reasoning that, yes, there is a logical ground for believing in God. Congratulations, God, you have logical grounds for existing. That is not what the Bible holds out as man's search for God. You know how man discovers God? Not by putting God on trial and, and asking God to prove his existence in extra biblical terms. Man understands that God exists by humbling himself. We understand that God exists by fearing God, by bowing to God, by submitting to God. Romans 1 tells us all of us know God exists. I'm sure there are people here this morning, right in this room, who are not yet Christians. Praise God you're here. I'm so thankful you're here. Welcome. I'm not your enemy. I'm not your antagonist, but I would like to be, just for a few brief minutes, your intellectual conversation partner. And I'm here to tell you there is no such thing as an atheist who is truly convinced of their atheism, there are people who know the truth of God but suppress it. 
There are people who know God exists, in other words, but they push it down. We don't fundamentally have an information problem as sinners. Oh, does God really exist? I don't know. I've never seen any good arguments. No, Romans 1 tells us we can see the divine attributes of God. We can look out at the heavens. We can look out at the ocean, the mountains, and we can see that God exists. His invisible power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived since the foundation of the earth. There's no such thing as a justified atheist. There is such a thing as a suppressing theist. And that's a lot of people, tragically, who are lost. So the way to know there is a God is to stop suppressing. It's to stop shaking your fist at God. It's to humble yourself before God, trust in the name of Christ, and embrace the fear of the Lord. Just one more text on this theme. In the New Testament, Philippians 2, 12 to 13, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What does this mean? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? I think it means this, as one commentator has said. One does not live out the gospel casually or lightly, but as one who knows what it means to stand in awe of the living God. On the other hand, nothing of failure or lack of confidence is implied. The gospel is God's thing, and the God who has saved his people is an awesome God. So, working out your salvation that God has given us should be done with a sense of holy awe and wonder. Okay, if you're taking notes and you're getting extra credit just for coming this morning, just so you know, write those words in those notes. Put that, I encourage you, open up the notes on your iPhone or other smartphone and write awe and wonder. Fear and trembling, equal sign. Awe and wonder. For the Christian, the fear and trembling that we have is not a terror that God is going to damn us. The fear and trembling we have is not that we are going to face the wrath of God, for we are not. You're not going to face the wrath of God. It fell, all of it for you, on Christ. He atoned for your sin. He has not left a little bit of wrath to hang over your head just to get you into the kingdom. You mind your P's and Q's now. No. Instead, he has done the far more generous, gracious, and wonderful thing, and he has poured out his wrath on the sun, and there is none remaining. Do you hear me this morning? There is none remaining for you. So you do not cower in terror before Almighty God. Instead, with boldness, you draw near to God. Boldly, you come. The Father, through the work of the Son, has opened the doors to his study. To use my intro once more. And it is not that he has said, you can come in a little. He has said, boldly come. This is the picture of the child who the, the doors of the study are open and the child runs in. The child doesn't stand on ceremony. 
The child should honor, of course, their dad in all sorts of ways. But we hear the words of the doctor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, on this count. You may have heard of him around these parts once or twice. Grown-up people, Lloyd-Jones preached, may be standing at a distance and showing great deference and being very formal. But the little child comes running in. He, he rushes and he holds on to his father's legs. He has a right that no one else has. It's not a matter of argument or logic or understanding. It's instinctive. It's a confidence born of knowledge that is deeper than words, deeper than understanding itself. What beautiful words. I don't know what your experience with your earthly father was or is. Um, even as I read that, in fact, you may not necessarily connect with it. You may not have run towards your father. You may not have hugged his legs with all your little childish might. I do know this experience in God's kindness when I return home. I anticipate this happening in roughly seven hours as I walk through the doors of my house. And I, I, I have experienced this many times coming back from ministry trips when the girls, my two girls, um, come down the hallway and they squeeze me and it is so sweet to be reunited. And then my son, he's like a little bull at the end of the hallway. He's like doing the thing with, your, with his foot, you know. And he like races down and boom, hits me like a little linebacker over the middle. And it's wonderful. The, the two little groups uh, engage me in slightly different ways and one of them kind of hurts, but it's wonderful. <laughs> is it not? This is what Lloyd-Jones is talking about in his British way. The child who runs toward the kind father. I don't know if you had one on earth. Not all of you did. But I know this. God the Father is infinitely kind. If you haven't had this blessing on earth, you have something better. You have a heavenly father who wants you to rush in and wants you to spend time with him and wants you to draw and fathers, what a word for us to think through. Yes, by way of application, we don't want to be stringent, high-strung, upset, twitchy fathers. We want to be fathers like God the Father. We all fail. We all stumble in many ways. Every Christian does, not just men. Women do too. But in terms of fatherhood, many of us can look at our lives and see where we do need to grow. And we do need to honestly sometimes not be so tight and not, not be so strict. We need to have authority in our home. We're the head of the home. Our, our children should learn to obey us, something that is dissipating all across America. We don't want primarily our authority, though, to be, to be voiced in, in this rock-the-halls kind of angry voice, do we? The father who really is in most control of his home is not the one who rages around like a tyrant, is he? You might think that. The father who's really most in control of his home is the one who can say a word, a calm word, and his kids hear him and respond to him. Now, he has times where he has to say a strong word. Let that be said. He definitely does. But in general, the pattern of his fatherhood is calm, controlled, patient, kind, 
He draws his children near. He's a warm father, not a cold one. His kids want to be with him. Okay, this isn't a sermon on fatherhood, but if we're just paying attention to the text and we're paying attention to the fatherhood of God, this is convicting. And it should convict us. And it should affect us. And it should change us. So, despite our sin, Christian, don't run from God. Draw near to God. Today, draw near to God with confidence. But where are you drawing near? Third truth. You're drawing near to the throne of grace. You're drawing near to a throne. That's a weird thing to say as this third truth in verse 16b. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Wait, wait, wait. I'm drawing near with confidence to a throne. All throughout scripture, thrones are terrifying places to be. Yes or no? Yes. Okay, good. I mean, you think about the book of Esther, for example. Esther fears for her life in the Old Testament because she's going to go into the king. And if the king is having a bad day on a whim, it's off with her head. You see this throughout the Old Testament. To go into a king is not a light and glancing thing. It is a terrifying reality. It is honestly taking your life in your own hands. That's what it is. People read that experience onto God. And they think, to go before a holy God, I'm, I'm talking about as a Christian, that is too high and holy and awesome for me even to contemplate. I can't, I can't draw near to God. I can't go to the throne. I don't deserve to be in the courtroom of God, all the angels arrayed around, the cherubim and flaming fire, and then the unapproachable light of God. I can't go to that. I don't have any access to that. I don't have any basis for that. I'm going to hang out here in the lobby, okay? And maybe once in a while, like, could I please have more? Could I have a little more grace? Could I make a little more at work? I'll just loft a prayer request once in a while in from the hall, okay? Because I'm not going in there. And that is not at all what scripture teaches. Scripture teaches us that you and I are to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. This is what the work of Christ has done. The work of Christ has transformed our experience of drawing near to the presence of God from one of terror of wrath into one of trust in grace. John MacArthur speaks well to this transition. By Christ's sacrifice of himself, God's throne of judgment is turned into a throne of grace for those who trust in him. As the Jewish high priest once a year for centuries had sprinkled blood on the mercy seat for the people's sins, Jesus shed his blood once and for all time for the sins of everyone who believes in him. It is to the very throne of this grace that any person can come now with confidence and assurance. Any person any person. It is the throne of grace because grace is dispensed there. That is what the throne exists to do for the Christian. Do you understand this? To dispense grace to you. This is because of the character of God. 
God the Father in the Old Testament is not the angry God, and God the Son in the New Testament is the loving form of God. And you've got a Bible with alternating gods who are fighting each other, and God the Father is foaming at the mouth angry, but God the Son is just hearts and flowers. No, it is God the Father who gave God the Son for us. It is God the Father who planned before all eternity, Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, to send his son so that the father would be able to love us, so that the father would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in the shed blood and empty tomb of Jesus Christ. And I am here to, to say to you this morning, if you will turn to Christ in faith today, you have immediate access to the Father. You don't need a long line of good works to be stored up so that then you're cleaned up enough to go to God. No, if you will trust in Christ this minute, if you will trust in Christ this morning or today, if you're going to the pool party, which sounds really fun, by the way, and you pull aside one of the youth leaders or the pastor, and you say, I've not been in a great place. I don't have my sins confessed. I don't sense that I am forgiven of God, but I want to be. If you will do that today, you will be forgiven on the spot, and you will never be unforgiven. Christians spend so much time talking about the moment of salvation. The moment of salvation is everything. But that's just the beginning. That's when the forgiveness starts. That's not when it ends. That's when it starts pouring into your life. That is your God, the God who wants to pour out. Verse 16, mercy and grace upon you. God didn't want to just pour it out for a minute, the minute of conversion, the minute of saving belief, which is a glorious moment, a moment we all need. Do not shirk this moment. Run to Christ. I'm, I'm, I'm saying be saved by faith, not by works, but by faith. But know this as well to the Christian, to the one who has trusted in Christ. Sunday morning sermons are for you. Church is for you. And really what it all bears down on is you finding mercy and grace over and over and over again. That's the Christian life. That's it. There is no sense of you or me needing to complete our justification, needing to ourselves forgive ourselves or pour mercy on ourselves as if this can happen. Some of you may have Catholic roots. You may have some background in that religion there may be residual guilt that you face from that or a different tradition where you think to yourself, yes, I'm mostly saved by grace, but I have to complete the work of Christ. I have to do my share. I have to do my part. This is a very American way to think. I've got to bring something to the picnic. You can't just go to the picnic. You've got to bring, you've got to bring a dish, okay? Maybe coleslaw. It may be, in the case of the Strand family, swinging by Kroger and buying yet another bag of Lay's potato chips. Excellent contribution to the church picnic there. 
strand family. We're running and gunning. We're a little bit behind, not gonna lie to you. We didn't have time. Sometimes my wife bakes the brownies, excellent brownies I might add, but sometimes it is the Lay's potato chips. I gotta at least bring a bag of chips to this, yes? I gotta contribute something, God, to my salvation. No, no, you bring nothing. You do nothing. All that is needed is to have faith in Christ. That's it. And mercy and grace starts that moment pouring into your life. Pouring into your life. This is not true of super Christians. This is true of all of us. This is true of you, believer, no matter what circumstances led you to church this morning. Sometimes church itself is great because we are all nicely presented and everything seems very much in equilibrium. Yes, how are you? I'm great. Everything is in perfect equilibrium in my life. Is it the same with you, brother or sister? Yes, it is. Everything is in perfect equilibrium, when in reality, the very process of getting to church itself can be one of the most scrambling experiences in all of human existence. Can it not? How are you, brother or sister? We are in perfect equilibrium. And yet, 10 minutes ago, the kids didn't have shoes. There was a fight that broke out in the van. It was terrible. Dad had to pull the car over. The cops were almost called. I'm just kidding about that part. But, you know, I mean, people, there, was, there were T-shirts thrown through the air. Everything seemed to be ready. This child was going to wear exactly what had been laid out, and yet a totally different outfit was presented with one minute to go on the clock, necessitating a quick, very hasty change of clothing. There's, there's food situations. Did the kids have food? I don't know. I thought... Were you feeding? No, I thought you were getting the granola bars. Granola bars were not procured, okay? I mean, it goes on and on. There's the coffee. Someone's got to get the coffee for dad and mom so that they can come into church with some kind of energy and not crash in the pew on the spot. I mean, getting to church itself can be anything but a state of perfect equilibrium. Yes, thank you, brother. Thank you, sister. We are doing marvelously. How are you? No, no, it's often not that way, and it's often not that way in the Christian life, is it? How are you? State of perfect equilibrium? No, no. We're hanging on to the bumper uh, by the pinky this week, to be honest with you. No, it's been challenging. Uh, yeah, we've, we've hit some communication difficulties in the marriage. Um, a child, we're, we're trying to love this child, but the child is... We're in a relationship where the child is, you know, fighting against us. It's hard. We've got sickness. We've got pain. We've got a family member. You age. You have family members that need your help very much. You have to shift out of your daily life and, and go make end-of-life decisions for someone. You don't want to be making this. There's work madness. American society seems like it is perpetually in crisis mode all the time nowadays. No. No, we're not always in a state of equilibrium, are we? But God wants to give mercy and grace. Now, mark this before we conclude with our fourth truth. It's very important to understand. The mercy and grace God gives is real mercy and grace, but it may not always feel like God is ministering mercy and grace to you. You understand? It may not always, from external eyes, look like God is ministering 
mercy, and grace. They may feel the complete opposite. Job's life was from start to finish a life of mercy and grace. Job went through the hardest possible circumstances anyone could go through. He lost everything. He lost his beloved children. It was not because he was being judged. Do you understand? He was not judged for sin. The book of Job does not teach us that Job was living righteously, but then started drifting. And so hence the heavenly counsel, Satan, can I sift him like wheat? God, sure, yeah, he is kind of a stinker these days. Cue, you know, chaos and tragedy. That's not the book of Job. The book of Job is that, God, is that Job was a righteous man, sacrificing for his children in order that if they had not gone to God and confessed sin, as we all must, their sins would be covered in the provisional temporal Old Testament system. Job was a godly father, thinking at all times about the good of his, his wife and his children, working for the spiritual benefit of his family tirelessly, and he is the man who gets absolutely blown to smithereens. And why is it? It is because God has a greater purpose, and God shows Job that despite terrible circumstances, God is worth it all. That is the purpose. That is the key teaching, really, of the book of Job. Whatever you go through, God is worth it all. And you going through hardship is you getting a chance from God to magnify God in the midst of it all. You not cursing God as your life is screws turned almost to the point of extinction is you giving God massive glory. The book of Job teaches, yes, there are seasons where there is that perfect equilibrium and everything is flying high, and you give God glory there because you're so joyfully thankful to God. If that's your life right now, Christian, if your life is going from strength to strength, wonderful. Praise God. Give thanks to him. That's his blessing upon you. He does that. But if your life is not flying high, if it's not strength to strength, don't make the mistake that we all make of thinking grace and mercy are done in me. The tap is off. My sin must have gotten before God and I don't have any more grace. I don't have any more mercy. Don't think that. It's not true. Mercy and grace pour into our lives as Christians, but it may not always look like that, and it may not always feel like that. Fourth truth, this will be brief. We rejoice that God loves to help us in time of need. God loves to help us in time of need. Look there at the end of verse 16, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help when in time of need. Eukairon in the Greek are testing time, literally, from the original text. When you are in your testing time, as we all will be at some point, that is when you may know, you may bank it, that you will find grace and you will receive mercy. 
not just when the times are good and you are going from strength to strength, when you are in the Eukairon moment, when you are in the moment when you feel stretched to the point of breaking, Hebrews 4.16 is telling you, you will find mercy and grace. You can bet on it. You can bank on it. It's not that you might. It's that you will. It may not look, again, like what you expect, though. It may not look like, in your time of testing, God stopping the test. That's what you and I want. It's right to pray for that. But the test may stop, or the test may continue. That's up to God. What you know is that grace, like a river, is there all the while. That's what the scripture is teaching you. So Christian, three closing applications. First, stop living in terror of God. Stop cowering before God. Stop projecting any genuinely bad experience in earthly terms of your Father unto God the Father. Be reframed in your doctrine of God the Father by the Word of God. And go to God in prayer. You have needs. The means appointed for the meeting of those needs is for you to pray to God over and over and over again. To pray even when you feel like you have worn out your welcome. To pray even when you've prayed this prayer request over and over. You, you are lonely. You do not want to be single. Honestly, you want to be married. You are married, but you need help in your marriage, which is true of tons of marriages. What is the appointed means? The appointed means is to go back, to keep going back, even when you don't feel like you should or could, and to not live in terror of God. Second, like a king anointing anointing his beloved son with expensive and overflowing oil. Let God pour out mercy and grace upon you. God has what you want and God has what you need, not the world. Let God pour out mercy and grace upon you like the king anointing his son. My cup overflows. The psalmist says in Psalm 23. Third, let God love you with an everlasting love. God is going to do this, just to be very clear, by his own holy prerogatives. But I would urge you to stop living in tight-fisted fear and agony and strictness regarding God the Father, and I would say, the world is on fire it really is but God is infinitely good and he loves you Christian why are you having such a hard time with God loving you I think Christians sometimes have an easier time with the judgment of God than the love of God the judgment of God makes sense to us. You, do, you, you know, you put in this, you get this. You put it in, you get it out. It's logical. It makes sense. Well, I, I mean, I'd like more blessing, but I haven't really done much, so I don't get much blessing. 
That is not the scriptural calculus. The scriptural calculus is not merely that you do nothing to deserve divine grace or mercy, but that you do everything to not deserve it. And God instead breaks through and pours it out upon you like a king anointing his son, his beloved son, with overflowing and very expensive oil. The God of the Bible is not the one who locks the study up and says, don't come in here. And definitely don't come in here until you've cleaned yourself up. The God of the Bible says, come, draw near with confidence based on the work of my son. Let's pray. Father God, forgive us. Forgive us for how wrong we understand you. Forgive us for how we, even though it's right there in the Bible, we don't know what your word teaches and we slip into our wrong patterns of thinking about you. And forgive us, oh God, for the sin of thinking that you are angry at your church when in truth you are loving toward your church. You are at peace with us. Our sin does grieve you. And yet, Father, you make the way back to yourself. Forgive us for thinking otherwise. And help us, Father, to make disciples. And in making disciples, to point people, many of whom have been trapped in false religions and worldviews where you are presented or some other divinity is presented as angry and rule-based and having basically no mercy and grace. Father, help us to burst with the good news so that this church will go out into Raleigh and the surrounding area and, and, and your church in this country will go out more broadly and we will announce that yes, you will judge the ungodly, but you have acted in love to give sinners your son. And that is the central truth and the greatest truth of your word. Help us to preach that in love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.